Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we will discuss the federal budget and uh, the new proposal from President Biden, which he released on March 9th. It's for fiscal year 2024 and beyond for the next 10 years. And we're going to look at that budget with uh, our, uh, our usual Concord Coalition policy experts, Tori Gorman, our policy director, and Steve uh, Robinson, our chief economist, both of whom have had years and years of experience uh, on Capitol Hill working with budgets on various uh, congressional committees. So this is we're just going to have an in-house discussion today. Uh, uh, no, no outside guests, but we've got enough to, expertise right here. That's right. Yeah, that's right. We're going we're to all pontificate about uh, using our our knowledge uh, to bring to bear here. But we did before the president issued his budget. We gave fair warning that there were a number of criteria that we were going to use. Uh, to assess the budget. And so what we're going to do today is tick through those criteria and assign a color coding to each. So our color coding goes like this. Green means we think he passed the threshold. Go. Green green means good. (laughs) Uh, Yellow means Eh, well, you know, it's uh, we got a few problems here, a few things that need to be explained, maybe some things that can be worked out. Uh, and red means now nah, uh, we didn't make it. It doesn't doesn't uh, satisfy our criteria. Doesn't pass the test. Right. So uh, I think that that's, uh, you know, because it, it really with a lot of these we found just, you know, green or yellow or pass fail doesn't quite work. There's some nuance in some of this stuff. Right. So uh, you may be asking, uh, what is the what are the criteria? Uh, here they are. I'll just, I'm going to tick through them and then we will jump into the uh, discussion of each. Um, first is adopts plausible economic assumptions. Second. That is, does it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are all does it. Does the budget. Reduce the projected debt to GDP ratio over the budget window. Number three includes a down payment on Social Security and Medicare reform. Number four submits a defense budget that reflects the administration's Ukraine policy. Number five explicitly reflects uh, the fate of the 2017 temporary tax cuts after 2025. Number six, reflects realistic costs of executive actions on student loan programs. Number seven, refrains from using budget gimmicks. And number eight, fully pays for any new tax cuts or spending increases. These are all Budget criteria that uh, basically the Concord Coalition has been using for years to uh, to judge 
uh, presidential budgets uh, updated to uh, reflect certain things like Ukraine policy and student loans that are more relevant to to this budget than than to others. So with that, uh, let me turn to Chief Economist Steve Robinson and ask, uh, Steve, does this budget adopt plausible economic assumptions? (laughs) Well, I suppose it's in the eye of the beholder. So is it, we should say green, yellow, or red? Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm leaning toward yellow here. Um, you know, there, there, there's a sort of this herd mentality among economists. You know, there's, there's safety in numbers. They all want to sort of not stray too far from the pact. And so from, from that respect, you know, OMB, the president's assumptions are not wildly divergent from you know, the Congressional Budget Office or the Blue Chip Economist Survey or the Federal Reserve's assumptions. So, you know, they they may have fudged a little the long-term economic growth. Uh, they're up at 2.2, whereas most other forecasters are in, you know, around 1.8. So, you know, there's a little optimism on the, on the, uh, on the economy side in the long run. Although, interestingly, the uh, president's budget assumes the economy is a little worse in the short run. So if you sort of add it out, you know, average it out over the period, they're a little worse in the long, short run and a little more optimistic in the long run, and it, it sort of washes out. So, I, you know, I don't want to ding them too much on that. But now where I'm, I'm most concerned, and again, not that they're straying too far from the pact here, but, you know, they're assuming inflation by the end of this year, 2023, inflation will be down to 3%. Now, we just had new CPI numbers this, this week, and you know, inflation's still running at 6%. Now, that's better than the 9% we had last year, mm-hmm. but we're still at 6 And the budget assumes inflation's going to be 3% by the end of the year, and it'll be 2.3% in 2024 and beyond, meaning that basically the Fed will have achieved its inflation target um, starting in next, next year. And of course, as a result, if inflation is low, interest rates are low, and the budget assumes interest rates uh, government debt will be below 4% throughout the rest of their, their baseline. It could happen, uh, but, but it might not happen. And, and the risk you run when you have $30 trillion in debt, every 1% extra interest uh, rate increase, uh, that's $300 billion in extra interest cost. So, you know, if they're wrong and interest rates are over 4% instead of under 4%, you know, you're talking an extra $3 trillion in interest cost over the next 10 years, something that they certainly didn't budget for. So, you know, their numbers aren't completely unrealistic, but I think that, you know, given what's happened right now this week or last week, I guess, with the uh, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, closure, you know, the Fed is, you know, certainly the markets are expecting the Fed to hedge on further interest rate increases. And if the Fed eases up or backs down, inflation may continue to persist beyond uh, the 3% that the budget assumes. And, uh, you know, that, that would be bad news for, for the budget. So we'll see. Yeah. And then the Fed would at some point step on the brakes hard again if right. uh, inflation started to go up. Um, Let's move on uh, then. Thank you, Steve. Uh, We'll move on to our next criteria, which is, does the budget reduce the projected debt to GDP ratio over the budget window? 
Uh, I will take this one myself. Um, the answer is yes, it does. So they get a green on this one. Uh, but, but I want to explain something. <laughs> it's not like uh, that we should all be uh, dancing in the streets on this because the debt to GDP ratio in the president's budget it is, you know, we calculate reduction from a baseline and the president's budget assumes uh, that the debt to GDP ratio would uh, would go up uh, substantially. CBO has it around 118 percent in 10 years. President's budget is slightly less than that. So um, he brings it down in the budget to 110 percent of GDP. Uh by 2033. Which is uh, big. Yeah. So, yes, it does come down, but that would still leave the debt to GDP ratio at an all time record high. Somewhere along the way, it passes 100%, uh, 106% of GDP, which is the, the post World War II high. And uh, it also, by the way, leaves interest costs as a percentage of GDP at an all-time high, mm-hmm. which is a really eye-popping thing. Um, so uh, the you know the good news comes with some caveats. So you know, kudos to the to the president. Now, what really strikes me when I look at this, and having been looking at these presidential budgets for a long time, if somebody said to me the president was going to put forward a deficit reduction plan totaling close to $3 trillion, which is what he does, I would say, oh, my God, that's just that's wonderful. We must be balancing the budget or getting close to a surplus. Mm -hmm. We are the hole that we're in is so deep that that doesn't even stabilize the debt to GDP ratio. I mean, forget about balancing the budget. That's just Mm -hmm. off in outer space somewhere. Right. A $3 trillion deficit reduction plan over 10 years doesn't even stabilize the debt to GDP ratio. That's that's the situation that we're in. So and, and in fact, what, what would it take? It would take a $7 trillion plan, more than twice what the president <laughs> is proposing, just to keep the debt to GDP ratio from increasing over the next 10 years. Uh, so, folks, we are we are really, uh, as I said to NPR last week, hang on to your seatbelts, which actually doesn't make any sense. Buckle your seatbelts might or hang on to your hat. But anyway, it came out. Hang on <laughs> to your, your seat hat. But, uh, buckle your yeah, hat. So, yeah. Hang buckle on to your, your hat like a like a pilgrim. You can buckle your hat. But <laughs> you get you get what I mean. Uh, this is a really dire situation with the budget rising on autopilot, the debt rising on autopilot for reasons that we can discuss. But um, kudos to the president for a deficit reduction plan of $3 trillion and for reducing the debt to GDP ratio. Just all let's keep in mind that there's a lot more that we will need to do. Uh, this is, I, I'd say this is sort of a good first step if we can even achieve it. Uh, okay, so now let's turn to some of the big spending programs in the budget. Uh, we have talked before about how Medicare and Social Security are both programmed, uh, both projected 
to uh, have their trust funds go insolvent, their main trust funds go insolvent within the budget window. Steve, one of our criteria is, uh, does the president include a down payment on Social Security and Medicare reform? What's our what's our color code show us there? <laughs> well, this one's a this is a split decision. So <gasps> the, 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 the president does absolutely nothing to address the Social Security insolvency that's looming at the end of the 10 year budget window. <laughs> red, red, red flag. Yeah. So, you know, somewhere in the budget, there's a there's a statement that he's not going to cut Social Security benefits. But, you know, I, I guess I can I can say that's true because he's not cutting them. Current law will cut them because the failure to reform Social Security means when the trust fund goes insolvent in 2033, benefits will automatically get cut by 22 percent. So, you know, I guess you can say he didn't do it, but he didn't do anything to stop it. So, yeah, he gets a, a big red F on the uh, Social Security side. Now, the Medicare side is a little more complicated. Um, he does make an effort to, to increase the solvency of Medicare. And he does that in a couple of ways. One way is real and convincing, and he should get a, a green light for that. But the other way he does it is not very real and not very convincing. So I would give him a red. So if you, I don't know, are we going to add red and green and get we yellow? We mix them there, together. But... Somehow it comes out yellow there, I guess. <laughs> it, yeah, uh... but so, yeah, so he proposes to, to, to raise taxes on the rich. Um, you, you notice there's a theme here because, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to raise taxes on the rich to fix Social Security. We're going to raise taxes on the rich to fix Medicare. We're going to raise taxes on the rich to extend the 2017 tax cuts. I, I don't know how many times we can keep going back to that well, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's a discussion for another day. Anyway, on the Medicare side, he does increase what's called the net investment uh, income tax, as well as the Medicare surcharge on, on the wealthy. And both of those taxes exist today. He would raise those rates from the current level up to 5%. So that additional revenue, which gets, gets him about $680 billion, that will go into the trust fund, Medicare trust fund, and that will extend solvency unquestionably. However, the other thing he does, which is a little odd, he takes the existing taxes, the Medicare surcharge and the existing uh, net investment tax. So he takes the revenue that we're already collecting and he simply credits that to the trust fund. So it's basically an accounting gimmick. He basically says, here's some money that we're already going to collect. It's already in the budget. We're already counting it. But instead of it going into the general fund and, and counting there, I'm going to credit the Medicare trust fund with this money. It's not new money. So, you know, again, I, I would say it's just double counting or however you want to describe it. But then the other thing, the interesting thing that he does he proposes to give a broader authority to negotiate prescription drug prices, and he claims that that's going to reduce future expenditures on Medicare drug plans uh, by $200 billion. Now, remember, this is the Medicare Part A trust fund, which is hospital insurance. So he's basically saying, I want to save Medicare Part D, which is under the supplemental Medicare insurance portion of the program, which is a separate trust fund. But all that, all that aside, he says, we're going to save money on Medicare drugs. And that money that we're going to save, I'm going to credit to the trust fund. Now, the, so, the Part A trust fund. The Part A trust fund. Yeah. So this, this reminds me, I'm going to tell you a story here. So these two guys walk in a bar. First guy has $10. The next guy has no money. They ask the bartender, how much are the drinks? The bartender says $10 each. But it's happy hour, so you buy one, get one free. 
First guy says, oh, that's great. Drinks are on me. Second guy says, wow, we just saved $10. So the same two guys go into the bar the next day. And the first guy has no money. The second guy now has $10. They ask the bartender, how much are drinks? The bartender says they're $10 each, but I'm sorry, guys, you missed happy hour. First guy says, oh, that's too bad. Second guy says, no, no, wait a minute. It's not. Remember the $10 you saved yesterday? So, so basically, you know, the $10 that they never had and to begin with, they're saying, well, that's some savings and we're going to use that to buy something with later. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't have the money. We didn't have the $200 billion that we're going to save. Remember, we're running $2 trillion annual right. deficits. Medicare doesn't have any money. Medicare's running deficits. The government's running deficits. So to, to not spend money that you don't have and then claim that you're going to now <laughs> spend that money on something else and you never had it to begin with, it, it's all a little, I don't know, shall we say phony accounting? I don't know. But yeah. anyway, that's, that's what's going on on the Medicare side. Well, that's a little bit of a uh, preview for uh, one of our other uh, criteria about uh, gimmicks, but we'll we'll get to that when we uh, get around to it. Um, Tori, I want to bring you into the uh, mix here, but I think we're going to have to take our first break. And then when we come back, uh, we'll ask you to discuss what the president's budget does with regard to defense spending and uh, specifically Ukraine. Can't You're wait. Listening- what? Can't wait. <laughs> OK. <laughs> You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, we're talking about the president's budget and uh, judged by Concord Coalition criteria. I'm talking with uh, chief economist Steve Robinson and policy director Tori Gorman. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We are discussing President Biden's fiscal year 2024 budget, which was released last week, and we are measuring it against a set of criteria that the Concord Coalition put out the day before the budget was released. Uh, Well, we've worked through a number of the criteria, and Mm -hmm. now we're going to switch to the defense budget. And, uh, Tori, you've been looking at that. What we specifically said in our criteria for that was, does it uh, uh, reflect the administration's Ukraine policy? You've got some background and some thoughts on that. Yeah, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context before I answer the question directly, just because I think there are, you know, there are some some myths that surround defense spending. And if you're going to give me a microphone and a platform and some people to listen, I'm going to take the opportunity and talk a little bit. So, <laughs> okay. so, you so, got first, it. <laughs> so here, here I go. Uh, well, first, since time in memoriam, Democrats have been champions of social spending. Republicans have been champions of defense spending. You know, Democrats prioritize a strong safe, social safety net. Republicans prioritize a strong national defense. There, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just, you know, things that, that demarcate the two parties. So when we have a divided government, as we do now, it's it's typical for the party in power, in this case, President Biden, a Democrat in the White House, to lowball the other side's 
this mean the Republican priorities in the budget, knowing that when it comes time to negotiate, the president's going to have to give ground and compromise. And they'd rather do that at the end of negotiations than before they've even begun. I mean, why should President Biden negotiate against himself? And if you recall, President Biden's very first defense proposal two years ago was flat, zero increase. Okay, so that's why before I even broke open the books on this budget, I knew Biden's defense number was going to be low. And it is at a time when the United States is arming Ukraine in its war against Russia. We've already appropriated $113 billion in military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine and, and counting. We're not done yet. Tensions are building with China. And today's inflation data says if inflation is running at 6%. The Biden budget proposes an unrealistic 3.2% increase, most of it for the Pentagon, the Department of Defense. And all in, that's about $886 billion for fiscal 24. And to put this in context, the defense budget increase last year, when the dust finally settled, was a 10% increase. Uh, now, Democrats are going to squawk. They're going to say that the defense budget is bloated, that it dwarfs every other category of discretionary spending and it needs to be cut. And they do have a point. The Pentagon is lousy at tracking its spending. There's certainly waste, fraud and abuse that can be eliminated. But Democrats are also only telling half the story when they say things like that. Defense may be the single largest category of discretionary spending, but that's because nearly all defense spending is discretionary. We have a ton of non-defense social safety net spending on the mandatory side, namely Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. And those dwarf the defense budget. When you look at total spending for, for last year. Defense budget was about 13% of total spending, but Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid was 45% of, of total spending. So let, you know, let's put this a little bit in, into context. Um, and when you compare defense spending to the overall size of the economy, the defense budget's actually been shrinking since the 1980s. If you remember the Reagan era, defense was nearly 6% of GDP. Now it's around 3% of GDP. So, Let's talk some specifics about the Biden budget um, on the, the good news. The Biden budget is rightfully heavy on munitions, basically the weapons that we need to fight. The budget also spends big on personnel. We're not growing our service ranks, but the Biden budget would provide a pretty hefty raise, a 5.2% raise for military personnel and the civilians who work for the Defense Department. And again, inflation running at 6% or higher, that makes sense. Uh, moreover, the budget recognizes that we need to start doing business differently uh, if our armed forces are going to be ready for direct conflict. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine revealed a major vulnerability in U.S. arms manufacturing as our defense industrial base failed to keep pace, or I shouldn't say failed, they struggled to keep pace with demand. So for the first time, the Pentagon is asking Congress to improve multi-year money for the purchase of these weapons. We already do this for ships and aircraft, and now they want to do it for weapons. And there's a good reason to do that, because if the, the Pentagon can secure bulk discounts, then that approach might actually save money in the long run. Now, here's what really disappoints me about the Biden budget, however, and it, and it comes directly squarely to the criteria that we've set forward was the bold faced admission that President Biden has no intention, zero intention of funding our support for Ukraine through the regular appropriations process. 
Okay, a spokesman for the administration said specifically that instead they will rely on supplemental requests on an as needed basis, which typically means, dear Lord, the Ukrainians are running out of weapons. We need to pass this bill fast and we're going to designate this spending as an emergency, even though we knew last March that we'd need it eventually. Okay, that makes me mad. And why does this matter? It matters because it doesn't require the federal government to prioritize needs versus wants. If the current climbs and times require a beefy military budget, okay, A, let's try and find some savings elsewhere in the Pentagon budget. And hey, members of Congress, I'm talking to you. You are the ones that pad the defense appropriations bill year after year with stuff the Pentagon doesn't want, didn't ask for, and didn't need because it's manufactured by some contractor in your state or district. And B, let's see if there's anything we can trim from the non-defense side, okay? This concept of parity that developed, you know, under the Budget Control Act in 2011, that we have to have equal increases in defense and non-defense spending is childish at best, and it is wasteful at worst. One last thing I wanted to point out. Most senior, uh, the, the senior Republican on the Senate Budget Committee, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, he issued a press release pounding the 3.2% defense increase as pounding it as paltry. I totally expected that. I went over to look and see what the House Republican Budget Committee chairman was saying. Jody Arrington, his press release about the Biden budget was filled with all kinds of criticism, but didn't say a peep, didn't say a thing about the defense budget and the paltry 3.2% increase in defense spending. So I sense some dissension within the, the ranks of Republicans on the defense budget. And it'll be interesting to see what the Republicans do with their budget whenever they decide to produce one. So what's your color code? <laughs> oh, yeah. What's the rhetoric? Well, the direct question was, do they provide for their Ukraine policy? And the answer is no. They specifically say no. We're going to rely on supplemental emergency requests. So I give them a big fat red light. OK, more to come on that. Um, Steve, uh, we've got about four minutes left in the, in this segment. Uh, uh We've talked about the student loan uh, proposals that the Biden administration has uh, has had before. When you looked at the budget, one of our criteria was, uh, does it reflect uh, the realistic cost of the executive actions proposed on student loan programs? What did you find and uh, what do you think on the color code? <laughs> Um, I, I looked really long and really hard and I couldn't <laughs> find it. Uh, I actually had to reach out to a couple of my colleagues uh, in some of our, our fellow think tanks. And the consensus was that, that it wasn't there. It's sort of like when you look for something and don't find it, you don't know whether you just didn't look hard enough or whether it's really not there. But I, I'm convinced by, by consensus of, of the folks I've, I've been in touch with, it's not there. Um, and, and let me be clear what it is being not there. Um, the, the administration's done a bunch of things on student loans, including the case that's now before the Supreme Court. Last year, they proposed to forgive student loan debt of up to $20,000 per student. That was challenged in the court. Supreme Court heard oral arguments back in February. Uh, decision is pending. The court may or may not strike that down. 
However, in January of this year, the administration, or I should say the Department of Education, issued a proposed regulation. And the proposal would essentially change the income-related repayment uh, plan to allow students to, you know, basically base their, their, their loan repayments on their income. And the terms of the new proposal are much more generous than current law. The administration in the regulation estimated that it would cost $139 billion over 10 years. That, by most estimates, is a, you know, an undercount or understatement of the true cost. So I was expecting to find the $139 billion somewhere in the president's budget. Now, since it was a regulation, ostensibly it should have been included in the baseline uh, because it would reflect current law, a, a regulation implementing current law. So it would be a baseline uh, assumption, but it wasn't there. Um, fortunately, or unfortunately for the administration, the Congressional Budget Office came out with its own estimate of the proposal. And instead of it being $139 billion, the Congressional Budget Office says it's going to be $230 billion. Um, now, they said that that's assuming the Supreme Court uh, upholds the, the loan forgiveness. If, however, the Supreme Court strikes that down, a lot of the students whose loans would have been forgiven will instead opt into the income-related repayment. And that would add another $46 billion to the cost, bringing the total to, to $276 billion. So we did get an estimate of the administration's policy this week from the Congressional Budget Office, but we didn't get an estimate in the budget, uh, which is unfortunate. So that would be a red there, I guess. Yes. Uh, we, we do not uh, have that reflected uh, realistic costs reflected in the uh, in the budget. It's it's all a little bit murky because of what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, right. Decision. Um, but I think that CBO letter was uh, was helpful in, in clarifying. Uh, we're going to take a, our second break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing President Biden's fiscal year 2024 budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition uh, Policy Director Tory Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing President Biden's fiscal year 2024 budget, which was released last week. And we're using criteria that the Concord Coalition issued in advance of the budget in order to assess its credibility, I guess you might say. Tory, one of our criteria was whether or not it explicitly reflects the fate of the 2017 temporary tax cuts after 2025. Ah, so this was a pretty easy one to judge. I gave him a big red light on this one because the, the Biden budget is a big punt here. Uh, this is a, a case of having your cake and eating it too. The president's revenue baseline, so the actual numbers, assume that the 2017 tax cuts will expire in 2025 as enacted. But the budget also includes a paragraph saying that the president supports extending the tax cuts for taxpayers earning less than $400,000 and is happy to raise taxes further on wealthy individuals and corporations to pay for it. And you can read that on page 46 of the budget if you want to look for it yourself. So to me, this is, you know, you, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't say that I'm going to let the tax cuts expire, but I don't want the tax cuts to expire. So in my mind, it's a gimmick and it certainly isn't clear what 
the uh, Biden administration's proposal or, or, or position is uh, on these. Now, now, making those tax cuts permanent will be expensive, you know, upwards of one and a half trillion dollars. So it will be interesting to see how the Republican budget, when they decide to publish, publish theirs, how they deal with this little problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, presumably they will want to extend those tax cuts. And and uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that's reflected in the budget. So, yeah, so President Biden accepts the money and says, but I don't want it. I, I, I <laughs> will raise well, it some other way. Uh, well, it makes later. it impossible to, to 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 criticize him. Right. If one person says, hey, you don't support extending the tax cuts, he can point to this language and says, no, I really want to work with Republicans on extending the tax cuts. So, you know, it's just it's just it's it's a punt. It's a giant punt. Um, It's it's spineless. And if I could give them three flashing red lights, I would. So that gives us the red light. I should I should uh, explain that our color coding here is uh, a a green for satisfies the standard, uh, a yellow for we're not really quite sure this needs some explanation and red for no, this does not. Uh, satisfy the standard. Uh, there are two other uh, uh, standards that I want to get to, and, and hopefully we'll then have some time to briefly discuss some of the economic uh, news from the week. Um, the two remaining criteria are, does the budget refrain from uh, using gimmicks? And whether the budget fully offsets tax cuts or spending increases, uh, I'll address those two uh, if you've been listening to this program, you know that uh, there's a, a red card uh, on whether it refrains from using budget gimmicks. Yes, uh, there are budget gimmicks in the budget. Uh, there's nothing unique about the Biden budget. Uh, if you look at almost every presidential budget, I probably should say every presidential budget I've looked at over the last 30 years, there mm-hmm. are going to be some uh, budget gimmicks in it. Tory was just describing one about uh, assuming revenue is going to come in and saying that, uh, but we really aren't going to accept the revenue. Steve was talking about some of the uh, Medicare savings. Uh, part of it is just transferring existing funds to the Medicare trust fund. And, and then there's also taking some presumed prescription drug savings. And instead of crediting that to Medicare Part D, which you would think is the Medicare drug program, uh, switching that over to try to keep up the solvency of the Medicare Part A trust fund. And, you know, I should mention that one reason resources always get devoted to Medicare Part A when you're trying to shore things up is that that's what gets a lot of attention. Right. People talk about Medicare going insolvent or going bankrupt or whatever. It's all about the Medicare Part A trust fund. Uh, which is the hospital insurance program, and it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be funded by a payroll tax, which does not have a cap on income, by the way, unlike uh, Social Security. So uh, because it has that solvency flag, uh, it gets a lot of attention. And so people want to keep stuffing it with resources when it gets low. Whereas the other part of Medicare, uh, supplemental Medicare insurance, which includes Part D and Part B, uh, already get a general revenue subsidy of about 75% of their program costs. So nobody worries about those, pro- that, those parts of the program going bankrupt because they get an automatic general revenue subsidy. So you get a lot of accounting chicanery around the Medicare Part A, and some of that, uh, some of that is uh, taking place uh, this year. I want to focus on one of, one of my f- 
favorite budget gimmick to look at, which is <laughs> let's assume fiscal probity way off in the end of the baseline that a future president, a future Congress are going to be a heck of a lot more willing to cut discretionary spending than we are today. So if you look at the assumptions about discretionary spending, which is about that one third of the budget that's controlled by the appropriations process, it includes defense. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's about 50 percent of it. And then the other federal agencies. You get a you know, you get a number uh, year by year. And what presidents tend to do, and it's very apparent in this budget as well, is let's assume that we're going to have a short term plus up. In the near term, we're going to uh, we're going to increase defense spending. We're going to increase non-defense appropriations for the next year or two, and then we're going to assume that they get cut. And the further out you go, the more unrealistic these cuts become. So, if you just take, I'm going to just use the present budget, the president's budget, as an example. Over the first five years of the budget he actually increases discretionary outlays by 66 billion. Not too high over the baseline, 66 billion. Um, In the second five years of the budget, he assumes a cut of 377 billion from the baseline. So, um, you know, it's it, it, and if you look at discretionary spending as a percentage of the economy, it shrivels away to nothing. I mean, it's right. 50 year average is about 8% of GDP. It's now somewhere around 7% of GDP. The budget assumes it's going to go down to about 5% of GDP. That's split between defense and non-defense. So this is a guy that's talking about the importance of making investments and, uh, you know, we've got to get strong defense and do whatever it takes to to stick with Ukraine. And, and yet the long-term budget assumptions assume uh, that future lawmakers are going to be very parsimonious in their appropriation. So it really, it has the effect of uh, making the numbers look a lot better than they are uh, likely to be. And, uh, but all presidents do it. I, I, I've seen this, you know, in, in most presidential budgets anyway, and it's certainly uh, appropriate here. So I would say that's a gimmick. And along with the other gimmicks, enough to uh, award a red flag for does the budget avoid uh, budget gimmicks. Lastly, uh, does it fully offset the cost of tax cuts or spending increases? Yes, it does. We'll end on a high note. <laughs> a green. Uh, I would just point out, though, in, in giving this some contours, the president actually proposes 2.5 trillion increase in so-called mandatory spending or entitlements above the baseline over the next 10 years. That's that's pretty big. I mean, we talk mm-hmm. about, again, I got to restrain mandatory spending. The president is proposing a big, big increase in mandatory spending. That's not just the natural growth that takes place in Medicare and Social Security. Those are, this is a new programs mm-hmm. uh, that would uh, cost $2.5 trillion roughly over 10 years. Uh, the deficit reduction comes from the fact that he's proposing roughly $4.7 trillion in new revenues over the baseline. So it, it, that does fit the PAYGO standards. He, he's uh, raising revenues to more than offset the cost of the new programs. 
uh, you can say it's all unrealistic, and it is. But that part of it is a political statement. Uh, the new entitlement programs and the revenue taxes on the rich, as Steve mentioned, everything is taxing the rich to pay for all the new initiatives. Uh, you know, th- those can be looked at as uh, as he's entitled to do in a budget document. Uh, th- th- that's a political statement. Um, I think the three trillion dollar, you know, um, deficit reduction goal may be one that uh, maybe would be useful from both sides to look at and see. We'll see next what the what the Republicans do uh, before we leave. So that those are our those are our criteria and our goals, and you can read all about that on the website on ConcordCoalition.org. We got about two minutes. And in the last two minutes uh, of the program, there's a, you know, a ton of economic news. Um, the February jobs report was uh, pretty buoyant, not as buoyant as January's, but uh, over 300,000 new jobs. And, uh, and the last CPI report, uh, which came out on Tuesday morning, showed uh, still high inflation at six percent, but uh, down uh, from the uh, from, from the last report. The Fed is going to be meeting, and and we've we've got the bank failures that that happened this week with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and and a couple of others, uh, which may have something to do with the rate at which the Fed has been raising interest rates. Um, so the Fed is going to be meeting next week. What? Uh, what kind of a point are we at with the economy here? Um, <laughs> are we at like tipping point or everybody just, you know, be calm because we're still unwinding from the pandemic and everything's cool? Uh, Steve, Tori, what do you think? I think every economist who studies the economy has trying to, is ripping their hair out of their head trying to figure out what the hell is this post-COVID economy doing? They can't figure it. They can't figure it out. Seasonal norms are not, you know, seasonal patterns aren't playing out. Um, people are spending when inflation is high. I mean, it just I, I, I think people can't figure out. Well, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to be Jay Powell right now. But what do you think, Steve? Yeah. So I, I don't envy the Fed. Um, they're meeting next week to decide what to do. And, you know, a, a week ago, the bets were that the Fed was going to raise interest rates another quarter point or maybe even another half point. Uh, but that was the consensus prior to, to the bank uh, calamities of, of, of the end of last week. And you know now the bets are going the other way, that the Fed is either going to pause uh, and not raise rates at all, which is a, a, a huge shift. And so, I mean, there's just so much uncertainty right now. Um, you know, I, I, I think the, the Fed is going to have to, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I think we'll all just Still have to wait choice. and see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, you know, like I say, with the job numbers and the inflation numbers up, where they are, the assumption was higher rates are, are still called for. But, you know, if the Fed goes into, to you know, I don't want to use the word bailout mode, but, you know, I mean... <laughs> If you look at what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, essentially, they held a bunch of long-term bonds that were had low interest rates. And as interest rates started going up, those bonds fell in value. So essentially, the bank was underwater. They had more liabilities than they had assets. Once you mark their assets, what's called mark-to-market, you, you revalue their assets. And 
when their depositors started coming in asking for money, they started basically having a fire sale. They were selling off these securities at below face value. Now, the Fed could step in and say, look, we'll give you the face value for them and hope that you know, over the course of the loan, we'll get the money back. I mean, that's sort of what happened with, with TARP back in the 80s. The Fed ended up really not losing much, much if anything, on those bets on the mortgages and the bonds. And same thing could happen here. But you know, it's, you know, it's, again, it's too early to tell. I mean, there's. Yeah, that's, that, that's like a, uh, that, that light is a comment that could uh, apply to the entire post-pandemic recovery of what's going on. <laughs> right. still, still too early to tell. I'm going to project and predict that the Fed will pause and not raise interest rates at all in their next, uh, in their next meeting. Um, but who the heck knows? That's not <laughs> driven by the um, by the signs on the economy. But I think this uh, bank issue might be one that's going to make them uh, think a bit. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, anyway, that's all the time we have for this week. And the markets care nothing about my predictions. What's going to happen? I just thought I'd say that. Um, so you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, I've been talking with Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson, a little in-house discussion uh, evaluating President Biden's fiscal year 2024 budget. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs> <laughs>